it's not just business. It's personal and deeply personal. Today, I'm going to talk about balancing the urge to be nice to people with the desire to be open and honest and deliver hard feedback to those same people, especially in a work context, especially as a leader. Many leaders struggle with this seeming contradiction or dichotomy between sort of niceness and being pleasant and maintaining a high bar. What I've seen in the past is most people swing way too far in one direction or the other. So you have great leaders who swing really hard in the direction of honesty, say after reading Ray Dalio's book, and they go all in on radical transparency. And in the process of doing that, they alienate their teams with their perceived harshness. And we see the opposite all too often. I think that's much worse and much more common, which is people are way too nice and they don't deliver hard feedback because they want to be nice to people. And that leads to an ultimate degradation in your culture and in the output of your team. That's because without open feedback and guidance, people aren't challenged to do their best work. So what is radical candor? Well, radical candor is a communication framework that you can implement right now to improve your relationships at work and the outcomes that your team is achieving. Radical candor as a framework was developed by Kim Scott, who was a leader at Apple and at Google during some of their most formative years um, and really grew her teams in sales at those companies to great success. Radical candor is based on the concepts of challenging directly and caring personally, and I'm going to get into those a little bit. So today we're going to talk about guidance and really what it is that a boss or a leader does. Uh, And then we'll dig into the radical candor framework. What is challenging directly? What is caring personally? And how does that affect how you communicate on a daily basis? And we'll also talk a little bit about how you give effective guidance and in particular, you know, how you understand people in order to give them effective guidance. What I'm not going to do today is dig into the tactical management advice that is in this book. There's tons of excellent management advice, um, things like how to have better one-on-ones, how to have career conversations. And in fact, the the framework for career conversations in this book is one of the best I've ever seen. I have never had a manager, even though I've had excellent managers in my life, I've never had a manager who took that level of detail and care in personal growth and development. So if you're interested to hear about those more tactical management aspects, drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io and I'd be happy to do an episode on that if there's interest. But since we're mostly focused on leadership, I'm going to focus on how we can take the approaches and the frameworks in this management-focused book and apply them as leaders whether or not we have direct reports, right? So you can be a high-level engineer, a designer, a product person, and you're a leader in your company, but you may not have people reporting to you officially. 
And we're going to dig into how we can utilize these things, these techniques, as one of those people as well. So what does a boss do? What does a manager do? There's lots of confusion about this. I mean, you see managers who think their job is to schedule meetings. You see managers who think their job is to make decisions. You see managers who think their job is to fill out expense reports. And you see a lot more than that as well. Um, There's lots of great managers. There's lots of bad managers. But what do bosses really do? Well, according to Kim Scott, bosses guide a team to achieve results. So that sounds kind of like a platitude, but if you dig into that, there's a few implicit activities in guiding a team to achieve results. So one of these is giving guidance. Another one is building a team. And the last is achieving results or executing. Um, And the argument is that all of these activities are ultimately driven by the relationships you have with people in your organization. And radical candor is really about how can you build trust with those people and improve those relationships. And it's instrumental for anyone who wants to guide teams to achieve results. So going back to the framework, you know, what is radical candor? There's a great graphic that I think you really need to see to understand it. And I'll try to put a link to it in the description. But essentially imagine a graph. So you've got an X and Y axis um, that is split into, of course, four quadrants. And your X axis is challenged directly. So on the left side, you know, you have not challenging people directly, just papering over things, being nice, avoiding the hard conversations. And on the right side, you have directly challenging people when you disagree with them, when you think that they aren't, um, you know, doing the right things, when you feel like they need to course correct, etc. So that's the x-axis, challenge directly. And the y-axis is care personally. So at the bottom end of the y-axis, right, as you go further down, you get into less and less personal care for people. It's all about business. It's all about what you're doing, only about the results. And as you go up on the y-axis, you start really caring about the people who you're working with on a personal level. So it's not just, I like Bob because he is good at writing code. It's, I like Alice because she's a cool person, because she contributes to this team. And I like her for who she is as an entire individual. And I know that may sound fluffy to some of you. I think that's a response I've heard from a few of my friends and peers when I've discussed this book a little bit. But I invite you to try to put that aside for now and hear me out on this and and you can see how you feel at the end. So, okay, you have caring personally and you have challenging directly and you have these four quadrants. And you take the quadrants and you say, okay, in the top right, when you care personally and you challenge directly, what you have is radical candor. When you don't challenge directly, but you do care personally, right? So you're in the top left of that graph. You have ruinous empathy. So 
what that looks like is you're unwilling to push people on things. You're unwilling to give hard feedback. And so you're just overly empathetic and nice. And that actually leads to horrible outcomes for the people that you care about. Um, if you don't care and you don't challenge people, so you're in the bottom left quadrant, you have manipulative insincerity. And that's really the worst thing that you could have. You're not being honest and you don't care about the people. You're just trying to move on with your day. Um, and then in the bottom right corner, in my opinion, and according to Kim Scott as well, the best place you can be other than radical candor is obnoxious aggression. So you're aggressive. You aren't really being caring for the people around you but at least you may be getting results. And there's definitely a bit of a dangerous trap in that. But um, those are kind of the four buckets. Now, one thing that's really important to note here is that these are not personality traits. This framework is not about taking people and putting them in boxes and saying, this is how you communicate and it's what you're doomed to be. It's actually a quadrant used to categorize guidance. So when you deliver a particular piece of guidance, whether that's praise or criticism, how are you delivering it? What are you saying? And which quadrant is that guidance landing in? So I want to dig into each of these a little more to try to bring some color to what they are. So if we talk about ruinous empathy, there's one great example in the book that I want to talk about, um, which is a a story from Jeff Weiner, who is the, or Weiner, I don't know how you say that, who was the CEO of LinkedIn. And I'll quote from the book here. When I was 30 years old, I came across a book called The Art of Happiness. It's about the teachings of the Dalai Lama, who explains it this way. Picture yourself walking along a mountainous trail. You come across a person being crushed by a boulder on their chest. The empathetic response would be to feel the same sense of crushing suffocation, thus rendering you helpless. The compassionate response would be to recognize that the person is in pain and to do everything within your power to remove the boulder and alleviate their suffering. Put another way, compassion is empathy plus action. End quote. So for me, you know, personally, I think I've fallen into the trap of ruinous empathy many times before. I think that I am deeply empathetic and I really do care about the people around me, especially when I'm in a mentorship or a leadership type role in relation to a particular individual. But it can lead to really negative outcomes. So to give you a personal example, there was someone, it's actually happened twice to me, um, that there's someone that I was mentoring and I had just been sort of in a mentorship leadership role for the first time and I was struggling to deliver the negative feedback. You know, I wanted to be encouraging. I wanted to say, hey, you're doing a good job, but you know, you need to do X, Y, Z. And what ended up happening is I would couch things a lot. So I would still try to give the real feedback like you need to you know, be more detail oriented when you're giving reports to our manager, as an example. 
And, but I would couch it and say, you did this well, you did that well, but you need to do X, Y, Z. And what ended up happening is the magnitude of the issues was detracted from. Like both of these individuals really thought they were doing great, but be- because of my inability to give them really clear guidance that they aren't doing what they need to be doing. And, you know, in the first case, I think the the guy didn't have the growth that he wanted. And so he, he moved on to a new company. And in the second case, I think he, you know, this, this individual came into a performance conversation with uh, a manager and was kind of blindsided by the negative feedback and the negative performance review. And I think that really soured the relationship between him and the manager, between him and myself. And, you know, overall, it's a regret of mine that I didn't, you know, challenge him earlier and more often and more directly. Because I was challenging, but I wasn't being direct enough. So that's where the challenge directly piece becomes really, really important. So that's an example of ruinous empathy, right? You think you're being nice to someone and you end up, you know, hampering their career growth, their productivity, and ultimately you prevent them from being able to reach their full potential, which, you know, there's nothing worse than that as a mentor. So what about obnoxious aggression? Obnoxious aggression is an interesting one. So like I was saying, I think that it is better to be obnoxiously aggressive than to be ruinously empathetic. Um, Another term for obnoxious aggression could be brutal honesty or front stabbing. So you challenge someone, but you don't show you care about them in any way. And, And people feel attacked based on this. What this can do is it makes people defensive and it makes them shut down. So I've done this as well. I've definitely been guilty of this. A good example was... You know, I was disagreeing with how a certain team was running a piece of a certain service in our production. And I tried, you know, a little bit briefly talking to someone about it. I wasn't getting the answers that I wanted. So I blew it up. I escalated this all the way to senior leadership. And I was very impassioned about, you know, um, making sweeping claims about the impact of this on our culture and you know, the that I wasn't going to put my name on this work and, and this and that. And ultimately, I did get the outcome that I wanted, but I burned a ton of relationship capital. And I think I definitely created sort of a sore relationship with some of the leaders on that team. And it took me a long time to kind of build those back through acts of goodwill, um, you know, by helping people out consistently over time. But if I had taken the time to go and sit down with that leader first before blowing it up, right? If I had taken the time to care personally for him and say, hey, you know, where are you coming from? Why is this happening in this way? I think I would have gotten a lot further um, than I did with obnoxious aggression. But the key difference between the obnoxious aggression and the ruinous empathy is at least I still protected the outcome. So better place to be but not a great place to be. So then we go down to manipulative insincerity. I think we've all done this before, but it's basically where, you know, 
you don't care about something or what someone is telling you. You don't agree with them. You're frustrated with them. And you just tell them, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, and you move on. You know, I've had this experience as well. Um, there's someone who was trying to talk to me about security and various techniques that we needed to implement in our application code to, you know, program securely. And I said, you know, we're already doing all of this, like, it's really not necessary. And then they were saying some things that I didn't really think made sense. Now, what I should have done at that point is tried to build the relationship with this person and then directly challenge them what they were saying. I should have said, hey, this specific technique that you're talking about is not relevant to our application. So in this case, um, this SQL string, these SQL strings that you see us using are not a risk for SQL injection because we use parameterized queries. Very specific, very technical challenge on what they're saying. Instead, what I did is I basically was like, yeah, it's fine, whatever, we'll do it, and kind of moved on, papered over it. And over time, it ended up leading to a much bigger issue um, because we weren't actually changing what we were doing because it didn't make sense to. And we had to go back and we had to start from square one. And there was a lot of, you know, tension and pain that was really avoidable if I had either just stuck to my guns and challenged directly or went and tried to just build the relationship or done both. So hopefully that gives you some color on, you know, what these different things mean. What is obnoxious aggression? What is manipulative insincerity? Um, what is ruinous empathy? And if you read the book, you'll see that they, Kim Scott, gives a lot of examples of these different things with stories from her own work. Um, but, I, you know, I, I can obviously speak to my own experiences much more effectively than to hers. So... That's why I wanted to start there. So what does it look like if you do have radical candor? If you care personally for someone and you challenge them directly? Well, I actually started trying to implement this right away um, one, as I was reading this book. And I actually had a really good experience with this recently. So we did somewhat of a reorg and I'm in a leadership position on a new team and I had some new team members uh, who were moving over from different parts of the organization. And first thing I did, based on some of the things I read on in this book, and also just generally my personality, is I just grabbed some time to get to know them better. I said, hey, you know, what are you interested in? Why are you excited or not excited to be on this new team? What do you do outside of work? You know, all of these sorts of things. And I've really made it a point to have those personal discussions. You know, we talked about um, snowboarding over Thanksgiving and, and various things of that nature. And then, you know, we got into a discussion where there was a broader discussion with senior leaders at our company, executives, about, again, how we're operating a certain service in our SaaS. And I felt like, things were sort of getting off the rail. This individual who's now on my team was really doing a good job of presenting the technical information, but he wasn't really 
taking control of the conversation and guiding it to a productive place. So it felt a bit unfocused in that meeting and there was kind of too many voices, too many cooks in the kitchen. So what I did is immediately after that meeting, I said, hey, I think you need to be more decisive about this, these things. You know, in your new role, you are empowered to make these decisions. And ultimately, I am looking to you to handle this and to drive this. And I'm here to support you, but you are the person best positioned in the company to be the decision maker on this, not the executives. So let's take this away. Let's come back with a recommendation and then let's move this forward. And he was like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Thank you for the feedback. This works great. And we we started to implement that right away. So even if you take nothing else away, if you just, as you're communicating with people, you keep this framework in mind, you just think about it once in a while, I think it makes a huge impact in how effectively you work in your team. And eventually, I think these things can influence how other people on your team are communicating, and it can get you to a really, really good place. Um, and Kim Scott of course, in the book does talk about you can take this stuff and very directly tell your team, hey, I am going to, I'm starting to be radically candid. Explain the framework to them. Tell them what you're doing and ask them to give you guidance back on your guidance. So I think that, I thought that was really interesting as well. I haven't tried that personally yet. I haven't had great luck in the past with trying to bring these sorts of frameworks and convince people to use them at work. Um, I, I tried to do it with Extreme Ownership, uh, which is Jocko Willink's book. I, I tried to do it with that a few times, I especially with some of the younger people who joined the team. I would actually send them the book and I'd say, hey, read this book. This is how we want to run things on our team. And I never really felt that it clicked compared to just leading by example. So take that, take that as you will. Before I move on, I do want to take a little more time to dig into those two dimensions, caring personally and challenging directly. So it seems obvious that if you're a good boss, you have to care about the people who report directly to you. But... Kim Scott talks a lot about how a lot of the time employees feel like they're treated as pawns on a chessboard, they're treated as inferiors, they're not treated as if they really matter as individuals. And part of the reason is this idea that's prevalent in the modern workplace that we need to keep things professional. There is a sort of, there's this idea that you need to be just professional, you need to put your personality and yourself in a box And you need to present and act a certain way at work in order to be effective. But there's a modern movement, and you'll see it all over the tech industry, to bring your whole self to work. And of course, it's become a meme, right? Um, it's, It's gotten to a crazy point where people want to actually be unprofessional. Not saying like, hey, you you want to you know, you wear t-shirts at work or something, but you're actively harming your company by, for example, posting negative 
information in public on social media about your company, right? That's not what we're talking about here. But what I'm really talking about is you need to actually care about this person as a person, not as an employee, not as an engineer or a designer or a associate product manager, but as a human being. So it's just about acknowledging that we are people with lives and aspirations beyond our shared work. And it's about finding time for real conversations and getting to know people at a human level. And then in terms of challenging directly, you know, the, the biggest thing is you, and I'll quote from the book here, you have to accept that sometimes people on your team will be mad at you. In fact, if nobody is ever mad at you, you probably aren't challenging your team enough. The key, as in any relationship, is how you handle the anger. When what you say hurts, acknowledge the other person's pain. Don't pretend it doesn't hurt or say it shouldn't hurt. Just show that you care. End quote. So this is something that lots of people struggle with. And as I said, I have struggled with this a lot in the past. And as I've been reading this book, you know, some of the things that I was talking about previously where I wasn't challenging directly and I felt like I was giving a lot of ruinously empathetic guidance, that was going on as I was reading these chapters and it really helped me realize what I was doing. And I do think that I was able to change my guidance and my communication to start getting on a better path, but at that point it was too late. So I think another important thing to discuss here is radical candor is not a license to be harsh or to just be an asshole. Actually, this book was parodied in Silicon Valley, the TV show. And if you haven't watched that show, strongly recommend. It's hilarious and one of the most accurate caricatures of the tech industry that I've ever seen. But it was basically in that in that episode, there was this executive who would say, keep talking about Radcan, and he'd say, hey, in the interest of Radcan, you know, your work is shit and, and you're worthless or something like that. <laughs> so obviously that's not what radical candor is. Um, and it's also not, you know, a, an invitation to pick on every small little thing. Uh, one thing I liked that that she talked about in the book was leave three unimportant things unsaid each day. So, you know, and I think you can apply that to any relationship, right? If there's something minor that like mildly annoyed you that isn't a big deal, just let it go. Um, so I, I think another really important thing about the dimensions of radical candor is that in Kim Scott's words, they get measured at the listener's ear, not the speaker's mouth. So you have to be conscious and cognizant of the fact that it's not about how you think you're coming across. It's about how your communication is perceived by the people you're talking to. And you may have to go back and forth on these scales based on the personality, the background, and the motivations of the person that you're talking to. 
That's not to say that you lie or you paper over things if someone is not receptive to feedback. Of course, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that, you know, to take an example, someone who is a hard-charging, born-and-bred New Yorker who's been in Brooklyn their whole life is probably going to be able to be receptive to a different type of feedback than someone who grew up in the Midwest and has a more, you know, pleasant personality. Not that New Yorkers are unpleasant, but a personality that's oriented towards valuing being pleasant over being direct. So there, it is important to keep that in mind. So another thing I really liked that she talked about is how important it is to gauge your guidance, to find out how it lands for people. So, you know, you can ask them. Uh, if you did bring the framework to the people on your team and you explained it to them, of course, you can say, hey, you know, was I radically candid? Was I ruinously empathetic, etc." But if not, you know, you could even say, how did this feedback land? Was I direct enough? You know, what did I come across clearly? Did you understand where I was coming from on this issue? You know, different questions like that. Just to gauge, again, the guidance that you're giving. So while we're on this subject of kind of how do you move towards radical candor, I'll do a quick recap of a couple of points that Scott makes in the book. So the first thing is you need to start by soliciting criticism. You need to do this frequently. You need to do it all the time. And it's because radical candor is not a one-way street. It's absolutely a two-way street. And not only that, you need to start with asking people to criticize you to show that you're aware that you're often wrong, that you want to be challenged. You'll also learn a lot because the people who you're leading scrutinize you more closely probably than anyone else that you work with, especially if they're direct reports. But even if you're an individual contributor who's a lead on a team, you know people are watching what you do. And another important aspect is the more experience you get with receiving criticism and how that feels the better positioned you are to understand how your guidance is landing on other people. And the last thing is, of course, it's just a great way to build trust and strengthen the relationships because you need the strong relationship in order to be radically candid with one another. So again, actively solicit feedback and criticism. If someone's bold enough to criticize you, don't critique their criticism. So you need to listen with the intent to understand it, and you need to reward the candor regardless of the specific criticism. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, another thing you need to do is balance praise and criticism. So, of course, you need to be praising people as well as criticizing them. If you're only criticizing them, it's going to lead to a negative work environment and a negative experience with you as a leader. But beyond that, you need to be specific with both your praise and your criticism. A great quote here is, worry more about praise, less about criticism, 
but above all, be sincere. So what does she mean by worry more about praise? Well, when you're telling someone that they're doing a good job, it's very important that you're giving them specific feedback so they know what it is that they're doing well. Otherwise, you may unintentionally be encouraging them to do the very things that they're not doing as well. And going back to my examples, this is something I've fallen prey to a ton of times. So for me, it's definitely a focus area in the coming months is when I'm giving praise, you know, specifically, what is it? Hey, I really like the way that you presented this information to leadership and made a recommendation on what we should do. Hey, I really think that the quality of this work item was super high and I really appreciated the attention to detail and the way you laid out the design versus, hey, you really did a good job on this story. Nice work this week, right? Um, patronizing or insincere praise can really erode trust because people will think you're being fake. So you need to be specific about that. You should also be specific about criticism, but I think that's easier because people generally are more conscious of the criticism they're delivering than the praise. So it comes very naturally to people, to most people to say, okay, if I am giving criticism, I'm going to really analyze this and make sure it comes across in the right way. It's less natural to do the same for praise, but it's equally important. So another important factor as you're moving towards a culture of radical candor is to understand the border between obnoxious aggression and radical candor. And it's pretty close, right? You heard me say already a few times that the second best quadrant to be in is obnoxious aggression because at least you're honest, right? One important thing with this is don't personalize the criticism. So tell people that their work isn't good enough. Don't tell them that they aren't good enough. You want to avoid what's called the fundamental attribution error. So in the fundamental attribution error, you're highlighting the role of personal traits instead of external causes. For example, taking this one from the book, it's easier to say you're sloppy than to say you've been working nights and weekends and it's starting to take a toll on your ability to catch mistakes in your logic. Calling someone sloppy is a lot easier, again, but telling them what they're doing and how you're seeing the impact is actionable and it allows them to make a change and it also disarms them a little bit because you're not coming in and attacking them as a person. You're saying you need to do this different, right? You're not you need to make it clear that the problem's not due to some unfixable personality flaw and they just aren't good enough. Um, but that they can change what they're doing and improve. Another really useful piece of advice on the criticism is is beyond a certain point, just say it. I think that one's been useful to me as well, right? You can get really caught up in how you want to deliver your praise or your criticism, your guidance in general, beyond a certain point, you need to just say it. It's better for it to come off imperfectly than for it to be bottled and for it to come around at a later date 
and blow up or get into a worse situation because of that. And another point I'll make here is utilizing public and private praise differently. So understand the people you work with and understand how they might respond to different sorts of praise. So someone who feels like they are underappreciated currently in their role, for example, may really appreciate a public shout out at an all hands, right? Or a email you send to senior leaders saying, hey, this individual is doing a really great job. But someone who's more of an introvert and who really doesn't want that spotlight Well, to them, a handwritten note that says, you know, thank you for your work on this project. You really did a good job of X, Y, Z may be more impactful. So that's actually a good segue to my next point, which is really about you need to understand people that you're working with. And in particular, you need to try and understand what motivates different people in order to give them effective guidance. So this is definitely a hard thing to do. And in the book, they give a lot of great examples for how to do this, especially as a manager. And they lay out this whole framework for going in and understanding someone's background and their family. And it's very easy to do that. Well, it's not very easy, but it's a lot easier to do that if you have the space of structured one-on-ones and a reporting relationship to kind of drive that conversation. But how do you approach that if this person is not a direct report? I think it's really the same thing. I mean, take time to sit down with people and just get to know them. Ask them about their background. What, What were they working on before they joined your company or your team? What brought them to your company? What do they do for fun? What do they do outside of work? Where do they see themselves going in four years or five years? These are the types of questions that will help you understand what it is about the work that they care about. And it'll help you give them guidance that motivates them because ultimately you want to, because you care personally about them, you want them to achieve their goals. You want them to move in the direction that they're trying to go with their life. And that's kind of the beauty of this whole framework is it's really not some contrived, manipulative way of extracting the most value from people. It's just that if you care about your people and you have open communication with them, you can really help them get to the next level and that helps your team get to the next level. So related to understanding motivation, uh, a really interesting framework that um, Kim brings into the book is about rock stars and superstars. So there's, of course, this notion of the superstar of the 10x engineer in Silicon Valley, um, and we mythologize those people here for sure. So people who are on an extremely steep growth trajectory, who are ambitious, looking for new opportunities. They're an agent of change. Um, And we kind of glorify those people sometimes at the expense of what Kim refers to as rock stars. 
So she talks about rock stars as in the rock of Gibraltar, right? They're solid. Rock stars love their work. They've found their groove. They don't want the next job if it'll take them away from their craft. You know, as an example, not all artists want to own a gallery. Some of them just want to paint. And it's really important to, first of all, well, there's a few things here. It's really important to understand that you need a balance of rock stars and superstars on a high-performing team. You need stability and continuity, and that comes from your rock stars. These are people who are doing exceptional work at the level they're at, but they're not continuously pushing for the next thing, and that's okay. So especially if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you might see yourself as a superstar or you might want to see yourself as a superstar and feel like, you know, I'm on this steep trajectory and that's good and you should feel that way if you want to. But it's important to not make value judgments on people who are in the other boat. And it's also important to understand that people go between these groups throughout their lives. You know, in the book, she talks about how she was on a really aggressive growth trajectory and then she realized she was 40 and she wanted to focus on her family. And she became more of a rock star in that role where she wasn't trying to push and grow all the time in her work, but wanted to do a good job at her work and focus on things outside of work. And that's okay. And that allowed her to really build stability in her team and continuity and get things going in a really positive direction. So, okay, so so you have rock stars, you have superstars, and you have this idea of growth trajectories, right? So what you need to think about is what growth de- trajectory do the people on your team want to be on? And are you giving them opportunities that are in line with what they really want? So she has another nice chart here. There's a lot of these charts where there's a lot of these great charts in this book, but there's a chart here where she talks about the steep growth trajectory versus the gradual growth trajectory, trajectory, excuse me. And that's the y-axis. And again, it's important to note here as you go from gradual to steep growth trajectories, that's not actually better or worse. Going up on the graph doesn't make you better. But from left to right, on your x-axis, you have low performance to excellent performance. And that is obviously, excellent performance is better than low performance. And essentially what you have is people in the top right, excellent performers on a steep growth trajectory, they will keep growing and they'll provide growth to your team. As your team grows, they'll take on new responsibilities, they'll push the boundaries, they'll do a lot of those types of things. The people in the bottom right corner provide the stability. They're the bedrock of your team. They're the people who are going to be there coming in day in, day out, and have generally mastered their work and are doing sort of making incremental rather than sudden and dramatic improvements to themselves. Then you have sort of the middle chunk there. And in terms of middle chunk in terms of performance, right? So along the y-axis right down the middle. 
So what you want to do essentially is if you have someone who is on a very slow growth trajectory and who has middling performance, you'll start to see them sort of slip towards that bottom left corner of low performance and gradual growth trajectory. But above that, above the very slowest growth trajectory with the most middling performance, you have varying degrees of growth trajectories with pretty good performance. And what you want to do with those people is understand what motivates them again, understand the trajectory they want to be on, and figure out how to get them into the right half by giving guidance, by challenging them directly and caring for them personally. You get them into either the superstar or the rock star group. And then the last section, if we split it into thirds vertically, are the people who are low performers with varying growth trajectories. And in this sort of third of the chart, in the third of the group of people, you really want to focus on the low performers on a rapid growth trajectory. So if you're not doing great work, but I see you're getting vastly better week over week, month over month, quarter over quarter, again, I can use that and I can give you guidance to get you over to middling performance and then excellent performance. But if you're on a slow growth trajectory, you're not improving and you're performing poorly, um, it's time to figure something out. I mean, you may need to fire this person or you may need to really have a serious conversation with them about their performance and how it's not at the level that it needs to be. Um, I think the... The firing people is something that is important. And I think that's something that I really struggle with. Not that I've fired people. I'll be clear. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I've never had to fire anyone. I have had to be one of the reference people on a performance improvement plan who is helping implement the plan for someone else on the team and kind of maintaining oversight of that. But I like this quote from the book that I think really helped me and I hope it'll help you as well. In many ways, your job as a boss is to set and uphold a quality bar. That can feel harsh in the short term, but in the long run, the only thing that is meaner is lowering the bar. Don't get sucked into ruinous empathy when managing people who are doing okay but not great. Everybody can excel somewhere. And to build a great team that achieves exceptional results... Everybody needs to be doing great work. Accepting mediocrity isn't good for anybody. Um, and I also want to go into this with, with another story here. So when you fire someone, it's not necessarily negative for their life. I mean, of course, in the short term, it is. It's a huge shock. It's a distressing event. But oftentimes people realize that the role is not a good fit for them and they realize that they may need to move on, but it's scary, right? So a great example of this was I have a mentor at my work and he was talking to me about how earlier in his career, he was a manager and he was sort of brought in to a team to kind of try to clean up their engineering practices and or sort of clean house 
um, and start again. And it got to the point where some of the people he was able to really help them improve and get to a, a, a better level and really start contributing value, but there was a few people who couldn't. There's one individual in particular who was just really not performing at the level that he needed to be at. This guy was a great team member. He was a great person, um, but he just wasn't performing up to up to par, and it was having a negative impact on the team. and And my mentor could really see that. But the other complicating factor was this person was on a visa, an H1, and was due for sponsorship for a green card very soon. And it was sort of in processing. And if my mentor fired this person, you know, he was potentially putting the future of this guy's family in jeopardy. Um, so if you care personally for someone, that's obviously a really, really tough position to be in. Eventually, you know, he talked to his mentors at the time, his leaders, his bosses, etc., and they made the decision that they had to do it for the good of the company. It had to be done. And he agonized over this. Eventually, he did it, and then he agonized over it over it for years after that. He was wondering, you know, what happened to this person? What happened to their family? Did I ruin their life? And he said he was at Home Depot one day and he saw this guy and, and the guy ran up, you know, my, my mentor kind of tried to like, wasn't sure what to do. He was kind of looking the other way. He was like, do I say something? And this guy saw him and kind of came bounding up to him and gave him an emphatic greeting. He was like, hey, how are you doing? It's so good to see you. I'm so glad you fired me. I was stuck in that position. I wasn't making any progress. I didn't know what to do. I was too scared to leave because of my immigration situation. But since you, since we parted ways, I went on to join another company. I've grown massively in my roles and responsibilities. My kids are in school now. Um, I thought it was just a great example of, you know, it's not necessarily you're screwing this person over by firing them you may be giving them the freedom to go and try something new and find a role that really does work for them. But of course, I don't want to sugarcoat things, right? Like when you fire someone, they are no longer getting paychecks, right? They may lose their health insurance. So it's a serious decision and it needs to be handled with that seriousness. But I thought that was a good anecdote for how it's not always a bad thing. Um, okay, so, so that's kind of a piece on how you understand people and how you think about growth trajectories and you use that to deliver guidance. And again, this doesn't have to be as a manager. You know, I have a friend, I don't even know if he would consider me a mentor, but he's a friend at work who's slightly more junior than myself and we often chat with each other and he bounces ideas off of me and things and we've had lots of discussions around you know where does he want to go from here where does he want to be in a year from now and how does that you know impact what he's doing today and regularly when we have discussions you know he'll say hey you know how do you think I should handle this situation you can lean on that. You can say, okay, I know where you want to be in a year is this. 
So based on that, I think you should take this action and this helps you get to where you want to go in a concrete way. And that's really motivating for people. And again, if you care personally for people, you're helping them achieve their goals and you're helping your team. I think as a leader, there's really nothing better than that feeling, right? Where you've done something for someone that both helps them and improves the performance on your team. Um, so I think those are kind of some of the really big major points in the book. I do want to skim through a few more quotes that I really like um, and and then we'll close it out. So one little one-liner that I loved here is, the essence of leadership is not getting overwhelmed by circumstances. I think that's so true. I think that's a huge, huge factor I see in every great leader I know is staying cool in the presence of overwhelming adversity, in the presence of chaos, in the presence of pressure, just being able to hang in there, look around, take a breath and make a call. Um, so I really loved that one. Another one that I really liked going back to what I was talking about, about the joy of, of being a leader and, and having things land well for individuals as well as for, um, as well as for the team is there are few greater joys than doing work you love with people you care about and achieving great results. And I totally agree with that. I think that right there is the essence of what a lot of people love about working in startups and why a lot of people give up massive salaries at big companies in order to go out on a limb is you're doing work that you love with people that you care about and you're achieving something amazing. Um, I guess the last thing I just want to touch on is again, the consistency and the frequency of this stuff. So Radical Candor is not about being very honest in your performance reviews. Of course, that's there and that's important. But it's about getting into a pattern where you're regularly giving and receiving guidance from your teams. And this is small conversations, two minutes before and after meetings. It's the hallway conversations. It's jumping on a quick Zoom call to discuss what just happened. Instead of letting things pile up and saving them for one-on-ones or performance reviews or things like that. Okay, so hopefully you all found this useful, even if you're not a manager. I know we talked a lot about growth trajectory and performance management and things of that nature. But I really think if you start thinking about people on your team, as you get into a leadership role as an individual contributor, that's how you're really going to achieve great things. Because even if you're an engineer, but you're a tech lead or an architect, or you're a lead product designer, or you're a senior product manager, you're role has changed from just being responsible for the work you do to being responsible for the work in an entire area or across a group of people. And taking on some of the qualities of a great manager will allow you to get the most out of the people on your team, even if they're not your direct reports. 
So related to that, we have a few books kind of in this vein that we're going to be working through. Um, one that I'm excited about that will be the return of our joint episodes is Ayan and I will be doing High Output Management, which is really if there's one book that is the manual on management in Silicon Valley, it's Andy Grove's High Output Management. So I'm excited to dig into that one and try to figure out similar insights that we can pull and apply as managers, but also just as leaders. Um, another one is The Elegant Puzzle by Will Larson. So it's very engineering management specific. And I'm curious to dig into that one as well and figure out, hey, if you're a designer, if you're an engineer, if you're a PM, you know, how can you, what can you learn from great engineering managers that can help you be better at your work? So tune in for that. Again, if you want to hear more about the specific managerial advice in this book, drop us a line at contact at rdmr.io. It is really rich, the information in this book about that stuff. And again, that, that career goals, career conversations framework is really excellent. And I'd be happy to dig into it if there's interest in that. Okay, so with that, that is radical candor, or at least the parts that I think are relevant outside of a management role. So I hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening, and I hope that today you can care personally and challenge someone directly. As always, thanks for listening.